Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners. Today, we have a very interesting guest on maybe the most important topic facing America, probably at least through June or July, and that is Michael R. Strain, Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Most recently, he's the author of The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It. So, Michael, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. And we want to just kind of set the table here. And we know that the circumstances that caused the 2008 financial crisis were quite different from the economic disruption that we faced during the pandemic. But in the instances of both of these crises or economic disruption, the government did intervene. This time around, the rescue package was significantly larger. Is it even possible to compare and contrast the government's stimulus and spending from the 08 crisis to today? Well, you can certainly compare them. Uh, and they were very, very different. The uh, 08 uh, economic stimulus effort totaled in the neighborhood of $800 billion, And the total effort to combat uh, the economic effects of the pandemic uh, came close to six trillion, so very, very different in size, very different in magnitude. In addition, there's kind of a question of what's the what's the right size, and I think that that uh, that question there's a lot of confusion around that question. You know, one way to think about it is what's the economy's underlying potential to produce goods and services? If everybody who wanted a job had a job, if everybody who had a job was working. Uh, as many hours uh, as they wanted to work. If every uh, if every factory in America was uh, running uh, at full capacity, uh, if businesses and workers were using technology to its fullest extent to make them as productive as possible, how much how much stuff can we produce? Uh, how many how, how many goods and services can we produce? What's the dollar value of total goods and services we could produce? What 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 would GDP be under those circumstances? And what happens in an economic downturn is that not everybody who wants a job gets a job. Not everybody who uh, has a job works as many hours as they want to work. Businesses don't run their factories at full capacity because they they worry that the demand for their for their products and the demand for their services won't be there. And so you can think of economic stimulus as kind of a way to you know, support the economy when private demand drops. Uh, and what happened during the 08 crisis was that Congress uh, responded, but arguably Congress didn't respond enough. The pace of the recovery from the 2008 crisis would have been slower if Congress hadn't passed the Recovery Act. Uh, but the Recovery Act probably wasn't big enough. And as importantly, the Recovery Act was very poorly designed. And so a lot of the spending in the Recovery Act took months and months and months, if not longer, to actually get into the economy. We had the opposite problem with the response uh, to the pandemic. The response, the economic policy response, the fiscal policy response, what Congress did uh, to respond to the pandemic was really much, much, much too big. Uh, and, you know, you can kind of think of the economy as a bathtub. And when the bathtub is, is, is filled to the brim, that's the economy operating at potential. That's the economy producing 
as much stuff, as many goods and services as it can, given its underlying resources. In a recession, the water uh, goes three quarters of the way up the bathtub or 90% of the way up the bathtub, but not, but not all the way to the top. The Recovery Act, because of its design and because of its size, failed to get the water to the top of the bathtub after the 08 crisis. After the pandemic, Congress didn't turn off the tap. And so we filled the bathtub and then we kept, we kept the tap running and there's water spilling all over the floor. And now like the bathroom is flooded and all that water on the floor and all that flooding shows up as uh, the inflation that we've been living with uh, for, um, you know, roughly a year and a half. That's what happens when Congress juices economic demand well above the ability of the supply side of the economy to meet that demand. Um, you end up with these large price increases because businesses just can't produce anymore. And so they, they raise prices instead. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the size of the stimulus um, isn't the only reason we've had inflation, certainly, uh, but it's but it's been a it's been a, a, a big part of it. Um, and so that's, you know, in addition to just comparing the size of the response to both crises, I think it's useful to kind of think about them relative to uh, the economy's uh, supply side and the economy's ability to meet the demand that those laws juiced. So, Michael, what you just mentioned is one of the things that we wanted to investigate with you and to get your perspective on, because it seems like everyone does agree with you that the excess spending that happened during the pandemic was a contributor to inflation. Finally, though. Uh, yeah, perhaps it took a while. Yeah, there, it took a while. There's a lot of debate about that. There's a lot of debate about that. Those of us who were arguing that the American Rescue Plan was too large, uh, that argument being made in uh, primarily in February and March of 2021, you know, were were uh, we were there were there were not a lot of us <laughs> so but yes i think at this point there's there's a much broader agreement on that point i suppose the doubters have been pointing to these other factors that you refer to the global supply chain crisis particularly in regards to the war in ukraine and the shutdown of factories in china and those that were the strongest defenders of the government us government covid response wanted to point to these as the biggest factors behind inflation, and perhaps the American Rescue Plan is a smaller factor. In, in your estimation, what is the correct way to understand this balance of factors? How important is the American fiscal policy? Is it 20% of the inflation? Is it 80% of the inflation? Maybe you can't give us a number, but give us an idea of how big of a factor it is in regard to this balance with the other factors. You know, I think it really depends on kind of uh, what time period you're looking at. And so if you look at 2021, uh, before um, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, watching that, that brutal war in Ukraine, we had a lot of inflation. And if you, if you kind of look at inflation in 2021, I would argue uh, that the American Rescue Plan was responsible for, you know, a little more than half of the excess inflation that we had, you know, so we always want some inflation, right? The Fed doesn't want uh, there to be no inflation. The Fed wants uh, consumer prices to grow at, at, at a 2% annual rate. So the Fed's targeting 2% inflation, which is higher than zero. Uh, and so if you look at the excess inflation, the inflation over and above 2% that we had in 2021, um, I think, you know, a little more than half of that came from uh, the American Rescue Plan. And 
uh, the rest of it came from other supply related factors. And there were a lot and there were a lot of supply related factors even before the war in Ukraine. Uh, of course, then um, the war in Ukraine really exacerbated uh, supply problems in the economy. Uh, the war in Ukraine led to uh, substantial increases in the price of energy, uh, substantial increases in uh, the price of other commodities, um, including agricultural commodities. And so you, and so that showed up in, in higher food prices. Then, you know, China, you know, had a zero COVID policy and that, you know, led to additional uh, supply uh, problems. And so supply was a bigger story in 2022 than it was in 2021. Um, but uh, demand issues uh, that were fueled not only by the American Rescue Plan, you know, people, people forget one of the reasons the American Rescue Plan was, in my view, so inadvisable is because in December of 2020, after the uh, presidential election, Congress passed and President Trump signed a $900 billion stimulus. Remember, the Recovery Act following the 08 crisis was about $800 billion. Uh, And so here we are in December of 2020, Congress signs a $900 billion stimulus. I'm sorry, the president signs a $900 billion stimulus. And then, you know, a couple of months later, we add another $1.9 trillion uh, on top of that. 2022, certainly supply factors were, were, you know, a big part of the story, but demand factors were a big part of the story too, driven uh, by the American Rescue Plan, but also by other efforts to uh, support the economy during the pandemic that were, that were signed into law by President Trump. If you've been shaking your head at the grocery store checkout or endured the pain at the pump, you felt the impact of inflation. Inflation is simply... Uh, the price that we pay for similar goods over a period of time. That increase has now reached its highest level in four decades. Economists tell News 9 there are two major factors driving inflation. One was the government response to the COVID-19 pandemic in the form of monetary policy and relief funds to help sustain the economy. To the tune of $2 trillion, that increased the supply of money. And at the same time, we had... Uh, the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, increased the liquidity in the system, the amount of cash in the system, and brought the interest rate to almost zero. Those lower rates pumped billions more dollars into the economy. Then economists say the second factor, also related to the pandemic, kicked in. Global supply chains became snarled and delayed, meaning that in America, a nation of consumers, supply is not meeting demand. So, Michael, we're contrasting these two different scenarios and the two different outcomes that came from two different policy responses. So in one case, after 2008, we had a much slower recovery with high unemployment, but no inflation. In this case, we've got almost full employment, very little unemployment, but high inflation. I know that both of these scenarios have their own share of challenges and downsides, but as an economic manager in your country, which of these situations would you rather be facing? Well, you know, I would like uh, a third option, which is um, to uh, have fiscal policy that is able to is able to foster a really rapid and robust uh, labor market recovery, but that doesn't uh, give us nine percent consumer price inflation like we've had. You know, and 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 the reason why is because you know my concern is that the kind of question that you ask, which is a very good and reasonable question, 
uh, you know, might present a kind of a false uh, dichotomy. Um, I think the the challenge is that yes, you know, going uh, uh, overboard, not turning the bathtub spigot off, allowing water to kind of overflow the bathtub and slosh onto the onto the floor, that does that does get people back to work quickly for sure, no doubt about it. Um, right now there are there are two job openings for every one unemployed worker. You know, businesses just can't can't find the workers they need. And the reason that they want workers so badly is because demand for their products and services is still off the charts. And the reason demand for their products and services is still off the charts is because consumers uh, have a lot of money in their pockets. That's great. Um, and there have been other beneficial effects of it as well. You know, wages are growing fastest for low-wage workers. Um, wages at the bottom of the wage distribution are growing, you know, two, three times as fast as wages at the top. Uh, uh, and that's because the businesses that are the most desperate to hire are businesses that, that, that employ a relatively larger share of, uh, of workers who earn lower wages. But for most workers, the purchasing power of their wages, uh, their wages after taking into account inflation, are dropping at the fastest pace in 40 years. Uh, most households are seeing their uh, inflation-adjusted incomes go down, not up. Um, and so, yes, like we have this fantastic labor market recovery, and that's great. And you know, people have jobs, which is which is which is really important. Uh, but uh, the benefits from those jobs are um, not not what they should be because because of the inflation. You know, secondly, what you want is a is a uh, sustained recovery. What we had following the two thousand eight financial crisis was a recovery that lasted uh, until the pandemic. And that produced that kind of that kind of sustained recovery where inflation stayed at or below the Fed's uh, target. My concern is that by juicing demand you know well above the uh, supply side of the economy's uh, ability to handle that demand, that we're going to end up with a recession. And so we're going to have had, you know, this this really rapid recovery that took the unemployment rate down into the threes and and that, uh, uh, you know, put everybody back to work. But that, you know, that's going to be followed by a recession where the unemployment rate goes up and we don't know what that recession is going to look like. We don't know what that recovery is going to look like. Um, uh, and so it's hard to really know kind of which regime is better. But I think it's easy to know the best regime is one where fiscal and monetary policy uh, certainly respond to macroeconomic conditions, but do so in a way that is that is closely tethered to the actual macroeconomic needs. That way, you don't get you don't get a situation where uh, there are years where there are two, three, four, five unemployed workers for every job opening because demand doesn't come back. And you don't get a situation where you have 9% inflation. Yeah, good morning, Andrew. I can't think of another major vote on a major piece of legislation that was this unanimous, 96 to 0. And the vote, Andrew, would have been even more if it hadn't been for the fact that so many members of Congress uh, are sequestered back at home or are suffering themselves. 
from this virus. So we could have seen a hundred to nothing vote potentially yesterday in the United States Senate, but that's where it landed at 96 to zero. What's in the bill? Well, there's a little something for just about everybody in the economy here. Let's whip through some of the details here for you. Uh, for almost everybody, there are these direct payments of up to $1,200 per person. That's $500 per child. That phases out at about $75,000 of income gradually and over $100,000 of income. Uh, you won't get anything. I wanted to get in one last aspect of this most recent stimulus, which was different from 2008. I'm sure there are plenty of other examples, but specifically, it felt like there was almost a paradigm shift. And now we have direct payments to people and significant amounts of direct payments to people. So could you get into how now we have maybe a year or two years from when those payments were originally made. Uh, were they effective? And do we envision these type of economic stimulus plans to be uh, narrow in our quiver moving forward to deal with economic crises? So we had had direct stimulus payments before. Uh, they were just a lot smaller. Um, President Bush had them, for example. And you know we didn't kind of keep doing them like we did uh, in, in the pandemic. I think uh, it's a great question, and I and I and I do think that one of the, you know, what are the what are the big things that uh, economists and policy analysts are thinking about is exactly that question. You know, uh, should we be relying more on those sorts of just direct payments? And and I think that that is uh, definitely going to feature in in debates about how to respond to the next recession. Uh, I think depending on the kind of composition of Congress and, and who's sitting in the White House, that's something that we could see uh, used much more aggressively um, in uh, the next recession or in a future recession uh, than we have typically seen. Um, you know, my hope is that is that those payments are done in a more targeted way. There's very little reason to be giving checks to people who make two hundred thousand dollars a year, three hundred thousand dollars a year, things of that, you know, you know, magnitudes like that. Particularly uh, in a situation where, like, those people haven't lost jobs, or you know, nothing bad has happened to them, and you know, even, 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 even worse, in a situation where, because of monetary policy, the value of their home is up twenty percent, and you know, their stock portfolio is up twenty percent, and. And that sort of thing, and so you know, I think I think that uh, that direct checks to uh, households who you know, what should we be doing in a recession? We should be helping people who are who are truly in need. Uh, we should be helping people who whose uh, lives are upended, who really experience a crisis. Uh, programs like food stamps, programs like unemployment insurance, uh, serve that role. It's possible that we should be adding checks direct checks to, to households who find themselves uh, in, 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 in real need. But it's very difficult for me to imagine scenario, a scenario where I would find myself supporting uh, checks uh, the way that checks were done with the American Rescue Plan, where they were going to people who really were very high income people. I think the analogy that was used on a lot of cable news networks that just sticks with me is the government set up a sprinkler system where they were just raining cash everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to, you know, if you don't have unlimited water, you want to you want to water the lawn where <laughs> where the grass needs the water the most. <laughs> you know? And we don't have unlimited water. <laughs> 
Hello, I'm Andrew Yang, and I'm running for president as a Democrat in 2020. I'm not a politician, I'm a problem solver. I've spent the last number of years helping to create thousands of American jobs in the Midwest and the South. And I'm running for president to help solve the problems that got Donald Trump elected in 2016. Namely, that we'd automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs. And what we did to the manufacturing jobs, we're about to do to the retail jobs, the call center jobs, the fast food jobs, the truck driving jobs, and on and on through the economy. And I'm running for president to help America transition through this time. My flagship proposal is the freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for every American adult starting at age 18. This would create millions of jobs, make our children and families stronger, and give all Americans a better chance to transition in the economy of the 21st century. It's not left, it's not right, it's forward. So Michael, given the perspective that you've just shared with us about these one, two-time payments, about how they should have been more means-tested, more targeted, I think I'm probably safe in assuming that you don't think highly of the concept of universal basic income, which was becoming rather popular ahead of the pandemic. And some people believe anticipated the policy response or inspired the policy response during the pandemic. I'd like to, just since we're on the topic of direct payments, see if I can get a more comprehensive idea of your thoughts on that particular concept. Sure. So, you know, I, I, I think it really, I think it's one of those, uh, one of those terms that, that means a lot of different things to different people. But if you kind of take the common, or at least the original use of the term, you know, universal basic income, what does, what does, what does universal mean? It means it goes to everybody regardless of circumstances. Uh, what does basic mean? It means that it's enough to ensure a basic standard of living. And so a common proposal is $10,000 uh, per year per person. And then, of course, income means, you know, it's a, it's a check. I think that would probably be a civilization-destroying disaster. I think that uh, if it didn't destroy civilization, that's on, that would only be because it would be like completely impossible to implement. You know, why would it be impossible to implement? I mean, we don't have that that kind of money. You know, the the kind of libertarians who support uh, who support that proposal have in mind that we completely eliminate the entire uh, social safety net. Uh, so no more food stamps, no more housing assistance, no more disability insurance, no more you know X, Y, and Z. Uh, even if we were to do that, uh, we still don't have enough money. Um, for a lot of these proposals, the progressives who want to do it, they want to keep all the other stuff. Um, and you know, and just add that on. And we definitely don't have enough money to do that. Uh, if we were to do the, what the libertarians want to do, you know, I just don't think it's politically sustainable. Uh, uh, and you know, in this case, I think the reason it's not politically sustainable is because it's just, you know, fundamentally deeply unjust. Um, imagine two people who live side by side in houses right next to each other you know one person is uh, a, a perfectly healthy 35 year old guy has a wife and two kids and um you know good education and 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 you know great earnings potential he's getting a check for 40 grand uh the person next door is a veteran and the veteran it had his legs blowed off by a, a bomb fighting in a war for America. And the veteran has severe uh, psychological problems as a consequence of the war. And the guy, and, and, and the guy can't work. 
he's getting 10 grand. You know, that just doesn't seem just to me. Libertarians uh, who support this, uh, one of the things that they, one of the features in their mind of this program uh, would be that people will be responsible for their choices. You know, there's the, you know, they, they argue not unreasonably that receiving government benefits is an indignity um, and that you are a recipient and, you know, the people know you receive the benefits and that that's, you know, and, 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 you know, and a lot of times those benefits can be prescriptive. So you can have this, you know, you can have this credit card, but you can only, you know, spend it on food. And by the way, you know, you, you know, you can't buy Coca-Cola or, you know, you can buy one two liter bottle of Coca-Cola per month, but not two and, you know, or whatever, you know, it's very prescriptive and it's very paternalistic. It's argued that a benefit would be, you don't have to do that anymore. Well, you know, what happens if you blow all your money on gambling and alcohol? Well, you know, libertarian says that's your choice and it's nobody else's business what you do. But what if you have kids? And now your kids don't have any food because you spent all your money on alcohol and on uh, gambling. That's a problem. Uh, And, you know, I think a libertarian answer might be, well, they're your kids. And if you, you know, want your kids to uh, not have any food, that's up to you. That's not a very compelling or satisfying answer. Uh, to uh, to that problem, um, and it really kind of you know highlights a question: What is the safety net for? Is that money for the kids? Is that money for the adult? If the money's for the kids, then the entire ra- or even in part, if the money's for the kids, then the, the entire rationale for universal basic income, you know, really gets called into question. You know, finally, I know this was I know, I know you probably don't want me to talk about this for twenty minutes or so, but and you didn't realize you were pushing a button here. I, I know, um, but uh, I, I, I'm very concerned about uh, the effects that a really generous universal basic income would have on uh, on employment. Uh, and uh, you know, I think employment is uh, you know having people work is extremely important for the economy. Uh, it unlocks creative potential. It unlocks uh, an ecosystem that fosters dynamism and innovation, the kinds of innovations that really propel increases in the quality of life that people have. And it's really good for uh, society. It's, it's, it's good for society that, that, that people are occupied. It's good for that their time is occupied. It's good for society that people, you know, what would you be doing with your time if you weren't working? You know, probably, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be doing good things. Um, and work helps them to not do those uh, ungood things. Um, uh, it's good for society to have people making contributions. It's also, I think, deeply important for individuals. Uh, it's deeply important for uh, for uh, dignity. It's deeply important, I think, for people's ability to lead a flourishing life, um, and 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 I worry about the effects that that UBI would have on on that. So, uh, yes, not a fan, Michael. The way that you describe the libertarian concept of UBI reminded me a little bit of this idea of the thirty percent national sales tax, where you're just eliminating any kind of preference for people's means and needs. And instead, uh, the idea that everyone gets the same amount or everyone pays the same amount to buy a product. Oh, that's fair on paper. But 
when you're completely agnostic to the means that people actually have to uh, afford a proper lifestyle, um, you're ignoring the completely asymmetric way that that policy would play out on household to household basis. Yeah. I'm a big fan of taxing consumption much more than we do and taxing income much less than we do, but you could do that in a progressive way so that people who have higher incomes pay greater taxes. Where do we go from here? What happens? And why does the government get to keep spending? As Americans, we have credit cards, we have limits. You can't spend once you hit your limit. Well, we see the numbers are already $31 trillion in debt, and then we pass this $1.7 trillion monstrosity, plus the $1.5 trillion in COVID spending. At some point, enough is enough. And the Democrats' response to this was what? 87,000 IRS agents. And I'm here to tell you that we don't have a tax revenue problem. It's clear that we have a spending problem. I can tell you one thing here in Houston's Congressional District 38 that I represent. My answer is a hard no on raising the debt ceiling. I have a three-week-old boy at my house. I have a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter. And I'm here to tell you that I am not going to pass this on to them. And at some point, we have to take a look at this and say, spending has got to stop. We've got to get our house in order. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Ainsley. We as Americans actually have to balance our budget every single year. And they expect that from our government as well. So, Michael, this question, and this is accurate. I've been wanting to know an answer for this for nine years, maybe 10 years, and we're going to switch to the debt. And But before we get to the debt limit, I was wondering if you could just help us understand why limiting our national debt is important. Uh, the GOP lawmakers, like the gentleman I used to work for, he was a House Freedom Caucus member. So he was advocating for, in a lot of ways, cutting the social safety net because the debt that we had under President Obama represented this existential crisis. Is this something that we actually need to be mindful of and we need to be aware of and we need to work towards legislative solutions? Because when the GOP actually gets in power, they don't do anything with it. Actually, no, that's a lie. They just make it more out of control. Or is this just political messaging by one party to attack the other party when that party is in power? Yeah, so I, you know, I think both parties uh, are sincere in their concern about uh, the deficit and the national debt, but I also think both parties uh, uh, have other priorities that they prioritize above adding to the deficit. And so, you know, Republicans, I think, really do care about debt and deficits. They just care more about uh, cutting taxes. Um, and I think Democrats do care about debt and deficits. They just care more about uh, about uh, increasing spending. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of the kind of dynamic that we're in. The debt matters. I think that that gets lost in uh, in, in, in in this debate uh, for precisely the reasons you say, because, you know, Republicans shut down the government over the debt and take the government to the brink of default in 2011 over the debt, and then they win the White House, and all of a sudden they rack up tons of debt. You know, what happened there, guys? You know, the Democrats... You know, the Democrats, when attempting to defeat the 2017 tax law, started arguing about how important it is that we not add to the debt. And then people are like, well, wait a minute, guys, didn't you just, you know, spend all this money and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just because it's neither party's top priority doesn't mean that it doesn't really matter a lot. 
uh, for the economy and that it doesn't matter uh, for individual people's uh, economic outcomes. To kind of tie this to our earlier conversation, let me just be clear that there are definitely times where you want to run a deficit. There are definitely times where you want to incur debt. Congress was 100% right to pass a massive fiscal support measure in March of 2020 uh, without paying for it. That was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, Congress was right during World War II to write up big, big deficits. And so you, you want, you want the government to have the ability to run deficits, to issue debt, um, you know, things like, you know, requirements of the budget being balanced every year are, you know, would be, would be deeply, deeply harmful during catastrophes or wars or crises or situations of, of that nature. Um, but over the longer term, uh, we have a, we have a, we have a big problem. And the problem is that, uh, federal spending is projected to grow much faster than federal revenue. And that, uh, will lead us with a situation where, uh, the size of the national debt just grows and grows and grows and grows. Why does that matter? That matters because uh, it crowds out uh, private investment. You have all this debt that pushes up interest rates, that makes it more expensive for businesses, for private sector businesses to borrow money to invest. If private sector businesses are investing a little bit less, that means that workers are a little bit less productive. If workers are a little bit less productive, that means their wages are a little bit lower. If their wages are a little bit lower, that means their incomes are a little bit lower and their living standards are growing a little bit faster. Uh, and if, the, if, if, if that's a problem over a, a 20, 30, or 40-year time horizon, you know, then small little, little changes in any given year add up to a lot. And over a 30-year period, uh, we're in a very different place. Household incomes are much lower. Wages are much lower. Productivity growth is much slower than it would have been if we had had a responsible, sustainable trajectory for the debt. It matters because it makes it more expensive for people to buy houses and buy cars. Uh, it matters um, because a lot of that debt is held by uh, foreign entities. You know, you talk to military experts and and uh, they'll tell you that the national debt is a significant uh, national security risk. A, a recent chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff singled it out as uh, one of the most important security risks uh, that, 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 that face the United States. Um, the debt also matters because it crowds out other spending that could be happening. That means less money for infrastructure, less money for basic research, less money for law enforcement, less money for programs that foster upward economic mobility. Uh, those are just budget projections. But the political reality is that when we start spending, uh, you know, as the debt grows and grows, the interest payments that, that uh, taxpayers have to pay grow and grow. And, you know, when we reach a point where we're spending uh, more money servicing the debt, where debt interest payments are uh, greater than the amount we spend on the military, think about how hard it's going to be 
to get a really good job training program through Congress. Uh, think about how hard it's going to be to get a really uh, good uh, infrastructure uh, bill through Congress. Think about how hard it's going to be to you know fund scientific research that can that can unlock innovations that really lead to big improvements in in standard of living and quality of life. Um, so you know the debt matters economically. The debt matters in terms of our security. The debt matters uh, because the bigger the debt is, the harder it is for our government to make the kinds of investments in other areas of public policy that are so critical to make. So I want to put a really fine point on this because clearly you've outlined that the debt is very important and you've created a very scary scenario that I'm picturing in my mind 20, 30 years from now. Uh, but these numbers that we're talking about are really big. I think we're 30, 31 trillion in debt. And the members of Congress from the the right, the, the GOP, have been basically the boy that has cried wolf from my perspective, right? It's been messaging on the debt and the way they've been messaging on the debt, a lot of these members, I'm not saying all of them, uh, has been that if we don't fix this, uh, it's going to be a problem basically tomorrow, some of them are saying, some of the more extreme members. So when we're you know not economists, but we do follow the news and politics and everything else, is there a red line that we could cross with the national debt that would signal the tipping point that you would kind of outlined in the worst case scenario? Is it something like debt to GDP? Is it something like debt to the revenue we're intaking? And I'm sure it's nuanced and there's gray, but is there anything that we can look at to understand when we're approaching this really, really dire set of circumstances that you're outlining? I think the right way to think about the debt, say there are two kinds of problems. There are the kinds of problems where a bear shows up at your at your door. That's a that's an immediate crisis. You know, you you need to get out of your house or get a gun or do something, and or you're going to die like at that moment. And then the other type of problem is termites in the woodwork of your house. And that is not an immediate problem. If you don't take care of that today, that's not a big deal. If you wait until tomorrow or you wait until next week, uh, that's basically the same as taking care of it today. But if you don't take care of it, then one day your house is going to collapse. And if that happens while you're in it, you're going to be just as dead as if that bear ate you. Uh, And the debt is the best way to think about the debt between those two is that it's a termites and the woodwork problem. The, the, the risk um, is that kind of over time, gradually we have less private investment and that leads to a less productive uh, workforce that earns lower wages, has lower incomes that over time, you know, we don't pass laws to improve our infrastructure. We don't pass laws to fund, innovation, we don't pass laws to advance upward mobility, and that we just end up with a kind of more sclerotic, less mobile, less dynamic economy where people who are born into poverty or lower income households just have much less of a chance to rise. I think that that those risks are very likely to materialize if Congress doesn't do something. Uh, there is, I think, also a bear at the door type risk here. And, you know, the bear at the door type risk is hard to forecast. But right now, the U.S. is really, I think, uh, uh, you know, banking on 
the fact that there's nowhere else to go. U.S. Treasury bonds are the bedrock of the global financial system. We can run up debt and run up debt and run up debt. And bond investors may not like that in theory, but what are they going to do? You know, we're not going to they're not going to redesign the global financial system so that the euro is the bedrock or so that, uh, you know, China's debt is the bedrock or something, something of that nature. Um, but will that be true 30 years from now, 30 years from now is a long time. You know, it really, it really may be that, uh, something happens, um, in, you know, kind of global affairs that exposes the United States to the kinds of risks that a that another nation that doesn't that doesn't have the U.S.'s uh, preeminence in the world would experience if it had a debt that was as large as ours will be, you know, 15, 20 years from now. I don't think we want that to happen. That just seems like a kind of wildly imprudent imprudent uh, situation to put the U.S. in. It's not a problem that needs to be that needs to be fully solved in the next six months. It does not, in my view, make sense to attempt to balance the budget uh, in the next 10 years. But right now we have a problem, which is that the level of the debt uh, relative to uh, the size of the economy keeps going up and up and up and up and up. We need it to go down. Doesn't need to go to zero, but it just needs to go down. That needs to be a top priority defaulting on the national debt should be regarded as unthinkable. Failing to increase the debt limit would have absolutely catastrophic economic consequences. Um, it, It would be utterly unprecedented in American history for the United States government to default on its legal obligations. Um, I believe it would precipitate a financial crisis. It would threaten the jobs and savings of Americans um, and at a time when we're still uh, recovering from the COVID pandemic. I would plead with Congress simply to protect the full faith and credit of the United States by acting to raise or suspend the debt limit as soon as possible. What actually happens if the United States does not raise the debt ceiling and defaults? What does that actually mean? I think the following is the worst case scenario. The United States doesn't raise the debt ceiling. The Treasury Department cannot issue new debt. The Treasury Department cannot borrow a payment needs to be made. The Treasury can't make the payment in full because there's not enough tax revenue and the Treasury can't borrow. The Dow drops by thousands of points. There's complete chaos in financial markets. Markets freeze up. Uh, People want to hoard cash. There are massive liquidity problems. Uh, A global financial crisis uh, begins. Uh, the Fed steps in and attempts to do what it can, but what it can do is limited. The discussion around the globe is that political dysfunction in Washington has made it such that the U.S. is no longer a nation that honors its laws and that the U.S. is no longer a nation that honors its financial obligations. Uh, and that 
continues for one day, maybe two days, and then a bill to pass, a bill to increase the debt ceiling with no other conditions, a clean debt ceiling increase, passes both houses of Congress with substantial bipartisan support. That I think, that I think is what happens. I think that is the worst case scenario that we're that we're looking at, and so that's a that's a really bad scenario. Uh, that's a scenario that uh, finds consumer confidence about the economy plummeting, which itself is a drag on uh, on uh, consumer spending and economic growth. Um, that is a scenario where interest payments. Uh, where 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 interest rates on debt that is maturing uh, near that time period skyrocket, leaving taxpayers on the hook for billions of extra dollars. That's a situation where the U.S.'s credit rating is downgraded. It's a situation where U.S. borrowing costs are higher over over a period of years, if not decades, which means that the cost of private sector investment goes up, which means that productivity wages and incomes go down, which means that your credit card uh, interest rate is higher, which means that it's harder for you to get a car loan or harder for you to get a loan for a house. And it means that the United States has chosen to be a nation that doesn't honor its obligations. And America's self-conception is substantially damaged america's standing in the world is substantially damaged that last part really resonates because i i think that the long lasting damage that could be done is just something that's hard for us to comprehend especially considering the trajectory we are on with our allies right we're now back being a global leader with ukraine and even settling some trade disputes over in Europe. So it just seems unthinkable, unimaginable to me that folks would be playing with matches next to the gasoline pump, right? And in that vein, Michael, we do have the Republicans in the House. It seems like Senator McCall is like, McCarthy, you need to figure this out and and go at it. Do you have a clear picture of what the Republicans in the House are actually gearing up to fight over the debt limit about? Do they have clear asks or is this still opaque and kind of developing? I certainly don't have a clear picture. I don't think they have a clear picture from my, from my conversations with them. They, they don't uh, have a clear picture. Um, you know, some say they want to cut uh, spending on, on Medicare and social security. Uh, others don't want to do explicitly don't want to do that. Um, and President Trump weighed in uh, recently and said he didn't think that's a good idea either. And that's going to carry some weight with members. You know, I think some are, you know, really insisting that some spending be cut. I think others will be willing to uh, make a trade around something other than other than spending. And so there's a there's a there's a kind of a divergence of views over that. Uh, and you know, then you know, candidly, I think some others, you know, just want to. Uh, rattle the cage a little bit, and don't have a, you know, don't have a clear policy objective here. They have a kind of a political objective, and then I think that there are a lot of members 
and this is not a criticism of those members because this is a this is a you know uh, uh, an issue that you know hadn't hadn't come up a lot. But I think there are a lot of members who who I think are are learning about the stakes here, and you know they're they're trying to they're trying to wrap their heads around this, uh, and um, and they're they're learning more about it. But they didn't they didn't walk into this situation with a mastery of of, of the situation and, 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 and they're, and they're trying to acquire one, you know, Repub- but let me say Republicans are right that we have a debt problem, have a deficit problem that we need to reduce spending. That is all right. But I think that reducing that spending needs to be done in a responsible way. Uh, and, uh, I think that, uh, if Republicans are going to use the debt ceiling as leverage to get something done, that something needs to get done in, you know, March or April uh, before you start to see, you know, really substantial concern register about default risk in financial markets and, and before you start to see substantial volatility in financial markets. Is there any type of response we can see from the markets, from financial leaders on Wall Street, from the titans of industry that forces Republicans to work on raising the debt limit? Is, is there some type of catalyst that, that the financial markets can provide without ruining and destroying the United States reputation on the global stage? Or is this really something that cooler heads need to prevail on Capitol Hill on their own? I think cooler heads need to prevail. Um, you know, I think, I think you're already starting to see some indications in markets of uh, of the debt ceiling affecting behavior, and that's showing up in in, in yields and, and uh, prices and credit default swaps and things of that nature. But I think we are the closer we get to when Treasury runs out of runs out of uh, of, of, of of money, the greater the turmoil is going to be. If if this comes down to the eleventh hour and the debt ceiling is raised at the at the very last minute, you know that's gonna that's gonna lead to substantial. Uh, substantial problems. In 2011, we didn't default. Uh, a deal was struck at the 11th hour, and the S&P 500 lost 15% of its value. The 15% uh, U.S. credit rating was downgraded, um, and taxpayers were on the hook for uh, billions and billions of dollars in extra interest payments. Uh, because uh, of uh, uh, higher borrowing costs. And so, um, you know, getting out of the wire, even if you don't default, even if you raise the debt ceiling, if you wait until the 11th hour to do it, that still causes lots and lots of damage uh, to both uh, stock prices and to to interest payments that taxpayers have to pay. And so we're moving toward that. And Congress needs to understand that. Uh, and they need to take advantage of the month of January, the month of February, and the month of March in order to get a plan together and strike a deal with the president before you start to see really substantial turmoil. Because once you start seeing that kind of turmoil, uh, and once you start seeing uh, the situation affect stock prices and and, and affect uh, bond yields and things of that nature, then you just need to raise the debt ceiling. And so uh, if Republicans hope to extract a concession, they need to extract that concession soon, because at, at some point, very soon, it just becomes irresponsible to attempt to extract uh, a concession. So it's a cooler heads prevail kind of kind of situation. 
is the trillion dollar coin, it sounds like that would be just too late and maybe pie in the sky. It's hard for me to think of, uh, uh, you know, a policy uh, idea that's 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 sillier than the trillion dollar coin, you know, when measured against the severity of the situation that the policy is attempted to address. There's a, a law that allows the Treasury Department to mint platinum coins. And my understanding is that this law was passed because, you know, gold coins are expensive or whatever. Uh, and the whole point of this is is to allow the Treasury Department to make inexpensive uh, commemorative coins. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I could be I could I could be wrong about this, but I think that the law did not specify a maximum denomination for those coins. And therefore, it has been suggested by some that that denomination could be, you know, 30. Thirty trillion dollars, or you know, I guess if it can be if it can be thirty trillion, why can't it be three hundred trillion, or you know, whatever? Why is this problematic? You know, first of all, it's obviously ridiculous uh, on its face. Secondly, we have an entire system uh, that is set up by laws about how our finances work. And the Treasury Department does not control the money supply in that system. The Fed does. Uh, And uh, the Treasury Department is not empowered to just generate money, you know. And so this would be, if we were to do this, it would be a substantial, it would reflect a substantial change in the way our government functions that is not reflected by by, uh, congressional intent. That has never been understood to have to have been reflected by uh, by federal law, even if you can make some sort of technical legal argument. Third, uh, for this to work, the uh, Treasury Department would have to take that coin to the Fed and say, "Here, we have some money. Please credit our account and allow us to start writing checks." The Fed should not accept that coin. The Fed uh, almost surely would not accept that coin because that would be a a gross change to the way our our uh, economic system operates. The Treasury Department uh, might bring this to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court would almost surely rule that the Treasury does not have the ability to create trillions of dollars out of thin air. And so it wouldn't survive a court challenge. Most importantly, I don't think it would solve the problem. Um, it might allow, you know, let's say let's say the Fed accepted the coin and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Treasury or whatever. It might allow Treasury to pay to pay its bills. But what 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 this is really about is what this debt ceiling situation is really about is is the United States a country with functional enough politics that it can get its act together and pay the bills it is legally required to pay? And the question that is at the heart of this situation is, is uh, American politics so dysfunctional 
that our government cannot get its act together and pay our bills. If the U.S. government has to resort to minting a $1 trillion platinum coin and walking that over to the Fed and saying, here you go, we've solved the problem, then global investors will be shaken to the core. That would still uh, create conditions where there would be a giant vacuum in global financial leadership uh, and a giant vacuum in uh, America's role as as a world leader more broadly. And that vacuum would get filled. It wouldn't get filled the next day. It wouldn't get filled the next month. It wouldn't get filled the next year. But that vacuum would get filled.